Our text today is Psalm 95. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Oh, come, let us sing to Yahweh. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For Yahweh is the great God and the great king above all gods. In his hand are all the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before Yahweh our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we ask you to send us your spirit today that we might receive it, that we might interpret it correctly, guide our thoughts, direct my speech, I pray, deliver me from any error, anything that would lead anyone astray, uh, but guide us into truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God, you know that this last week we saw another hurricane crash into the Gulf Coast and create all kinds of horrible tragedies and problems up the east, uh, eastern part of our country. We can watch these enormous storms form. There's another one forming right now. We can see them forming out in the Atlantic Ocean, we can map with some accuracy where they are headed. We can measure their strength, but the one thing we can't do is stop them. We have no physical ability to stop or to turn the storm. If, if a storm like this is headed your way, you can board up your windows. You might consider evacuating, but once it is headed towards you, it's coming and there is nothing you can do to prevent it. Humanity is powerless before the might of the storm. We're apt to feel the very same sense of dread and powerlessness whenever we make the unfortunate choice of reading the news or listening to talk radio or visiting certain news websites because we see forces and agencies and institutions that are massive that are outside of our control, outside of our power to influence, like great, dangerous, swirling Category 5 hurricanes on our horizon. But these storms are not morally neutral the way that a hurricane is. These forces, these institutions actively promote wickedness. They're led by people who are some combination of evil and incompetent. Wherever that slider goes, they're evil and incompetent. But these forces are significantly bigger than any one person. They might as well be impending natural disasters bearing down on us because we seem to have just as little power, influence, or control to stop them. In the face of these things, in the face of this dread over this great darkness, it's a constant challenge for us to keep our hearts and our minds from despair. One of the ways we do that is by guarding our lives and our families from 
uh, their encroaching ignorance and their wickedness. We resist, we push back, we turn them off and we tune them out. We say, your message and your nonsense doesn't get any airtime around here. We refuse to comply with wicked, inept people who throw their weight around outside of their jurisdictions and outside of their powers. We dig in our heels like Daniel when he refused to stop praying even though the king mandated that he do so. Like the three Hebrew children who refused to bow to the idol though their lives were in danger should they uh, not comply. We resist like the Lord Jesus who didn't submit to the oral law tradition of the scribes and Pharisees, but he deliberately and openly opposed those ordinances. We practice faithful, principled Christian resistance. And occasionally we're fired up to do something more, but do what? What do you want to do? How are we going to fight back? What do we need? A great social media campaign, a really good YouTube video, get some publicity, raise some money? How about we get the right people elected or influence those who are already elected? That's what we need, right? Money, media, political influence, that's what changes the world. Are those really, are those the primary way that the world is changed? The answer is no, it's not. Now, I, I want to be sure and be clear, you know where I'm at. I'm not an Anabaptist. I'm not a pacifist. We can exercise the influence that God has given us in a system where we have more opportunity to speak up than Christians in other parts of the world or Christians in other times in history. God has given us these great liberties and sealed these liberties uh, with, with an agreement with our government where the government is supposed to protect these liberties. God has not made us slaves in our time, in our nation, in our context. He has not made us serfs. We are free men. We are not required to live or think like slaves. It's not required of us at all. So we use the influence and we use the opportunities that we have freely. However, the primary way that the world is changed for the better, the world is given life and revival and reformation by the one thing that no one in Washington pays attention to. Nobody cares about it on Wall Street or Hollywood or on cable news. You won't see it or you won't hear about it in a thousand hours of Netflix or in a week's worth of tweets by all the blue check uh, pundits. That is this, this truth, that the world is transformed, the world is preserved, the world is renewed. Week by week by the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ transforms and preserves and renews the world week by week. Lord's Day by Lord's Day, people united to Jesus enter the presence of the creator of the universe. He listens to their prayers and petitions. He speaks to them. He eats with them. And then he sends them back out with their marching orders. And the world is changed by worship. I realize this is a radical proposition and maybe to some of you it even sounds quite ridiculous. But this morning I want to explore how the world is changed and preserved by worship. For folks who've been around for a long time, you've heard these things taught in various contexts and various uh, uh, sermons. So consider this a refresher uh, to help you recall and renew your commitment to things that we might otherwise take for granted. For, for newer folks, however, I want to be sure that you understand our source 
I want to be sure you understand the source of our commitment to worship, why we insist on being together no matter what, why we do certain things, why we're particular about what we do in worship. Why is it so different from what you are used to? What's the rationale and what's the logic behind what we're doing in worship? Today, I want to get to the foundation. We'll walk through the service in coming weeks. Today, I want to articulate our underlying foundational perspective on what worship is and why it's so vital that we come together on the Lord's Day in a particular way. Because for most Christians, attending worship is secondary. Worship is non-essential. It isn't necessary for their lives or their salvation. For most Christians, Attending worship is something that's okay to do if it, feel, if it feels like it benefits you. If, you. if you think you're going to get something out of it today, well, then go. The church offers opportunities for fellowship and service, and, and it gives you connections in the community. Preaching is okay if it grabs your attention, if it's on a subject that you're interested in. But you can really get preaching anywhere. And honestly, you can get much better preaching on the internet or podcasts uh, or the radio than you can get in town. Worship may help us along in our Christian life a little bit, but, but really, honestly, it's not like it's the end of the world if we miss worship, right? It's, it's really nice when you need it, but worship has very little to do with our spiritual health. That's what our quiet time is for. That's what our private devotion time is for. That's where the growth happens, and that's the general perspective on worship. Folks, therefore, miss worship for the slightest reason, and it really doesn't even phase them. Oh, we're on vacation. I mean, today's only the Lord's Day when we're home, but when we're on the road, you know, it's just so tough to find a place to worship. <laughs> you know what rides you're going to ride in what order when you get to Disney World. You know where you're going to eat, but you didn't take time to figure out where you're going to worship on the Lord's Day. And, you know, finding a church is just going to mess up our plans. It's going to take away from our fun on vacation. Or, you know, we have people in town, and they don't go to church, and we don't get to see them every day. So we're going we're gonna to stay in, and we're going to have brunch. Or the kids have a soccer tournament. Or we have a project that we didn't get to finish around the house. Or we stayed out too late on Saturday night. Any excuse will do. We don't have an appreciation for the fact that worship is central. Worship is central for my relationship to the Lord Jesus. Worship is central for my family's life. It's central for the world. You and I and the whole cosmos are shaped and molded and transformed by worship. It's the one opportunity every week where you meet with your creator, where you stand in his presence and speak to him and eat with him. And you're going to skip it because Cousin Eddie is sleeping on your pullout? That's why you're going to miss it? You're going to skip an appointment with the creator of the universe because you didn't set an alarm? Because you need to paint your garage? We think like this because we don't know who we are and we don't know what we were created for. God created Adam, the first man, for worship. Adam's job and his purpose was to glorify his creator by obeying him and communing with him and listening to him and following him. God's glory overflowed out of the Trinity into humanity, which was to participate in the exchanges of glory and love and worship that were all, go, all going on in the Trinity. And now Adam gets to participate in this as a worshiper. 
And Adam was given a liturgical helper, Eve, who would worship with him. And out of their worship and out of their obedience together, they would have dominion over the whole earth. God gave them children who were to be trained up to be worshipers. They were to fill the earth with a race of worshipers. And that purpose didn't change after the fall. After the fall, the first thing that God does is restore them to fellowship so that they continue worshiping him. Through the flood, God preserves a family who loves him. And the first thing that Noah does on the other side of the flood is to uh, erect an altar. And he worships God. God and Noah renew covenant together. And all of creation is represented at that altar that Noah builds. All of creation is brought back into fellowship with God. Later on, God calls Abraham to stop worshiping false gods and start worshiping the God of creation. And so Abraham goes to the land of promise and he starts building these little outposts of the future kingdom, these altars and oases throughout the whole land. Later, Moses is going to stand before Pharaoh and he's going to ask that Pharaoh let the children of Israel go. Why? Why did they need to go? Why, what is the reason? Well, they need to go out and worship their God. Why? Because that's what they were created for. So they're delivered from Egypt and called out to Mount Sinai to hear and obey his word, to offer sacrifices, to eat and drink in his presence, to renew covenant with God. That's who they are. They are worshipers. They are a priestly people. And when they're gathered before him in his presence, in God's presence, they're called, very specific term, they're called the great assembly. It's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament. It's used throughout the Psalms. The word is kahal, the Hebrew word. We transliterate it Q-A-H-A-L, kahal. The congregation of the righteous, the assembly of the righteous that is called together over and over again, separated for worship. They've been delivered from bondage and they've been brought to the presence of God and in the Exodus brought to the presence of God at Mount Sinai to assemble there, offer praises and sacrifices to hear his word and to eat and drink before him. When we get to the New Testament, we get a new word that's very similar to Kahal, the ecclesia, the called out assembly. The same thing, the word is used to describe the church is the same word that's used to describe Israel when they're gathered together before God to renew covenant. The church is the transformed and renewed kahal. You and I, we, the church, have been called out, delivered from the slavery and bondage of sin, brought before his presence to offer praises, to hear his word, and to eat and drink in his presence. And what this means is this. That the church is not simply some nonprofit charity organization. The church is not, is not a group of people or a club who all agree on a certain philosophy of life. The word church is a liturgical description. The word church identifies us as a worshiping people. What distinguishes the church from the world is her worship. That's what distinguishes the church from the world. A few minutes ago, I, I read uh, Psalm 95. Psalm 95 from ancient times in the church has been used to begin Christian worship. It's the opening hymn of, of worship. And in Psalm 95, we hear the psalmist declare our posture, our orientation, our attitude toward worship. We come to shout joyfully. We come 
to him with thanksgiving and psalms. We bow down and kneel because that is a posture of worship. But why do we do this? Well, the psalmist tells us because he is the great God. He is the king. He holds the earth in his hands. He made it. And because we are the people of his pasture and because we are the sheep of his hands, we, we belong to him. He gives us our very being. So we respond to him in worship and we do it joyfully in the spirit of the psalm. We don't mumble. We don't whisper. The psalmist says we shout and we do it joyfully because this is how love responds to love. This is how the redeemed respond to the redeemer. This is how the created respond to the creator. When we pray, then we pray. When we confess our faith, we confess it boldly. When we sing, we don't murmur. We sing out because we are priests of God. This is our calling. Psalm 95 is a call to worship like a priest. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers then, which is a doctrine we love, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers doesn't only mean that we can pray directly to God without a human intercessor. It does mean that, and that's very important. We can pray to God directly without a human intercessor. And it doesn't mean only that we can read the Bible for ourselves, though that is true. The, do the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers means that you can read the Bible for yourself, and you must read the Bible for yourself. But it also means that we have a holy and happy duty to worship the triune God, and then when we do it, we do it all as priests. What does this mean, that we are entering worship as priests. Just two dimensions that I'm going to look at for the rest of my short time now. Our worship is an intercessory as priests, and our worship is warfare. There's two dimensions of a priest's duties. His work is intercessory. His work is warfare. Our worship first, as priests, is intercessory, meaning we represent God before the world, and we represent the world before God in worship. Israel was appointed by God to be a nation of priests, not just for their own benefit. I'm not just being called a priest for my own private devotion, but God promised to Abraham that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed and would have life. They were to be the mediators to bring God's blessing to the earth. He called and carved out this nation to be his representatives to the world. So that when God's people are faithful and obedient, it brings life and blessing to the entire earth. In Exodus 19, when uh, Israel's delivered from Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai, God tells them, this is what you are. You are the people who obey my voice. You are the people who keep my covenant. You are a special treasure to me. You are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Among all the nations, you are the holy priestly nation. The whole body of Israel was a nation of worshiping priests, representing God to the world and representing the world before God. So when they worshiped, when Israel worshiped, they worshiped on behalf of the world. They interceded for the world. They preserved the world through 
worship. This is made evident in several places, but one of the chief examples, God gave them an annual feast among their whole calendar of feasts and celebrations. He gave them the annual feast of tabernacles. That was a feast where they, you know, put up the branches and they made booths or tents, and they stayed in these tents for a week. This was a feast that reminded Israel of her time in the wilderness, but it also reminded them why they were set apart. Because over the course of the week-long celebration, they offered, as a nation, on the altar, they offered 70 bulls. What's the significance of 70? Why 70? Because back in Genesis 10, we get a list of all the nations and all the families of the earth. You want to guess how many there are? 70. And whenever we see the number 70 in the Bible, it's a rather obvious reminder of that roll call of the nations. So Israel and the annual Feast of Tabernacles offers 70 bulls on the altar, one for each nation, one for every nation of the world. They worshiped on behalf of the world. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the nations of the world. Israel represented the world before God. Now the church is the new Israel. We are a priestly people. Peter the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, he repeats all the things that God said to Israel about who they are, but Peter applies it all to the church. And so Peter says to the church, you are a chosen nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is the new glorious royal priesthood of God so that when you worship, understand this, you are not worshiping only for yourself. When you worship, you worship on behalf of the world. And when we come together to confess our sins, to hear God speak, to commune at his table, we're not doing it only for ourselves. Though we are worshiping for ourselves, but we're worshiping for the people we represent. Remember Job offered sacrifices for his sons? He said, just in case they've done something that, uh, that I don't know about, I want to I be sure that, they're, uh, that, that there's atonement for them. Remember how the high priest had a breastplate, and on that breastplate was 12 stones, and each stone had a name and represented a tribe of Israel as he went into the most holy place. The high priest wore Israel on his body as he went in to make intercession, just as Israel sacrificed the 70 bulls for the whole world every year. So you and I are the new Israel. We're the new holy nation. We're the new nation of priests, and we enter the very sanctuary of God, and we offer a sacrifice of praise for the whole world. When you and I come into worship, we come in bearing the world on our chest and on our shoulders into God's presence in worship. And so when you and I come together, we come to offer thanksgiving for the ungrateful nations and families around us. We give to God the praise that ought to be coming from them. When we confess our sins, we confess the sins of the world. When we pray our prayer of confession together, you may come across something every once in a while. You think, oh, I'm not really sure I did that this week. Honestly, before God with a clear conscience, I'm, I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. 
We're praying this prayer together, not only for our own sake, but for the people who aren't here and for all the nations of the world. We're confessing the, the sins of the church and the sins of the world. So we uh, do that on behalf of the world. Our prayers, when we pray to God, we beg for God's mercy on the whole world. We pray together, I'm praying for everybody and everything. We confess our faith on behalf of an unbelieving world. We eat and drink on behalf of the world and we're sent out for the world. All of the nations and all of the families of the earth are called to worship today. Everyone, when, when the call to worship goes out, everybody's supposed to show up. When we uh, finally get our building and we build our sanctuary, I hope at some point down the road we can have church bells because I would love to ring bells for all those houses and all those communities that say, wake up, it's time to get to worship, put your britches on, slick your hair down, get your stuff and go because it's time to worship. The call to worship goes out to the whole world. Now, many are not going to show up today. They're delinquent. They didn't come when the call to worship went out. But you did. And God hears your prayers and he hears your praises and he sees your faithfulness. And you are his priests that stand before him for the world. And therefore, he is merciful to the whole earth because of the faithfulness of his priestly people. Does that change your perspective on what we're here to do? Public worship is an official act. This isn't just informal Bible study. You know, sing a few songs, have some fellowship time, read a few verses, that's good. This isn't, worship isn't about me and my preferences and what makes me feel good. In fact, my concerns are at best secondary. You and I have an official duty as priests of God to come together at a particular time and do things a particular way because we are official ambassadors for the world, standing in the breach for the world, standing in the gap. Where do we get that term from? Remember, Moses um, interceded for Israel after they worshiped the golden calf. God said, I'm going to destroy them. And Moses says, please don't destroy them. Psalm 106 says what God's perspective was on that. Psalm 106 says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. We live in a world that has forgotten God their Savior and God their Creator. Wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore God said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath lest he destroy them. God would have destroyed them had not Moses, his priest, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath. Why wasn't the world burned to a cinder last week? Because it didn't deserve it? Why didn't a meteor come and just wipe everything out? Why didn't the United States shake and volcanoes erupt everywhere? Because we don't deserve it? Is that why? Why weren't you destroyed last week when you sinned, when you told a lie, or when you let lust run wild in your heart, or when you lost your temper? Why weren't you destroyed? The only reason that we're allowed to breathe, the only reason that the world continues to spin is because God's people stand like Moses in the breach, stand in the gap, 
God's people worship and pray for mercy for the world. And we do it every week. The world doesn't even know it. And it owes its life to the fact that there are people every week who come before God formally and stand before him and intercede and pray for his mercies. The world is preserved through worship. The priest is an intercessor. You are a priest. You worship for yourself, but also on behalf of your family and for the world. That's one dimension. Very quickly, the priest is not only an intercessor, he's also a warrior. He's a soldier. What did the priest wear? What did he have on? Well, he had a breastplate. Why does a, pre why does a priest need a breastplate? He had a helmet. He had a golden band around his turban, a ceremonial helmet. He had a sword to cut up the sacrifices. What did he need all that for? Why, why, was the, why was the priest dressed up like a warrior? Why were there shields and spears in the temple? Why all this? So we get to the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God. What did Paul have in mind when he's talking about the whole armor of God? Is he thinking about a Roman centurion? Is he thinking about a medieval knight? I've seen uh, posters in uh, Sunday school classrooms that have a medieval knight and say, put on the whole armor of God. How anachronistic is that Paul didn't think of a medieval knight? What's he thinking about? Paul's thinking about the armor of the priest. That's what's in his mind. And we, we answer that by finding out, well, Paul, who are our enemies? Why do we need this whole armor of God? Who are we supposed to be fighting in this armor? Not flesh and blood enemies, but the devil. Principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age against the spiritual hosts of wickedness. That's what he says our enemies are. So what, what does a sword do against a demon? How does a brass shield help you against principalities and powers? No, this is glorified priestly armor and these are special weapons suited to fight against those enemies. Priests were God's holy warriors who waged war in and through their worship. So we as priests today, we have this holy armor, these holy vestments to fight a war that's not going to be won by guns, and it's not going to be won by politics or money or media influence. Demons don't care about those things, and those things don't affect them. You can't win using those weapons alone. You can't shoot demons. You can't cut off their heads. You need to have the right weapons and an armor that will fight effectively against those enemies. So why do we put on that uh, uh, whole armor of God that Paul describes? He continues, he writes, so that you can pray always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. You put on this armor so that you can fight. And where do you fight? You fight in worship and prayer. Worship is warfare. Worship is our offensive strategy against the powers of darkness and the evil forces behind the bad guys that we see. There's this great story in 2 Chronicles 20 where Moab and Ammon invade the kingdom of Judah. Uh, these two um, nations that are always associated with Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, Lot's daughter's sons were Moab and Ammon. And these two nations are always associated with all kinds of perversion. And these are the nations that invade Judah. You talk about barbarians at the gates. These barbarians are already inside the gates. You're, you, you, we talked about a feeling of powerlessness before a great and mighty force, a feeling of despair. That's what they had. What do you do when this happens? So King Jehoshaphat 
responds by going to the temple. I want to read this section of 2 Chronicles 20 and listen carefully to the story. It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. This is the king of Judah. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria. And they are in Hazazon, Tamar, which is En Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek Yahweh and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from Yahweh and from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek Yahweh. The first thing they do when they find out this bad news that they're being invaded is they seek the Lord to worship him. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of Yahweh before the new court and said, O Yahweh, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand, is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence, for your name is in the temple, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now here are the people of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. But they turned from them and did not destroy them. Here they are, rewarding us by coming to throw us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us. We don't have enough swords. We don't have enough influence. We don't have enough people. We don't have a great enough military. We don't have... Uh, anything to do against this great impending disaster that's upon us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives, and their children stood before Yahweh. Nobody was left out. Then the spirit of Yahweh came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite, of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, thus says Yahweh to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still, and see the salvation of Yahweh who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for Yahweh is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem before the Lord, worshiping Yahweh. Then the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Kohathites stood up to praise Yahweh God of Israel with voices loud and high. So they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in Yahweh your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to Yahweh and who should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. Where are we going to put the priests? Where are we going to put the band? 
<laughs> where were we going to put the worshipers? In front of the army. And they were singing, praise Yahweh for his mercy endures forever. They're singing the Psalms, Psalm 106. Now, when they began to sing and to praise, Yahweh set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. For the people of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir to utterly kill and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. So when Judah came to a place overlooking the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and there were their dead bodies fallen on the earth. No one had escaped. Why did I just read a long story from the Old Testament? It's because I want you to hear and see how priests fight their battles. There's a great impending disaster on the horizon for Judah. King Jehoshaphat begins with prayer and fasting. All the people are assembled together. Children, nursing babes, women, everyone is assembled together. They worship and they pray and they cry out to God and then they go out to battle putting the worshipers up front because this is how we're going to fight. They worship God and God removed the threat. When they get to the battlefield, where's the army? They're all gone. They're all dead. They sang psalms and God defeated their armies. God responds to worship. And when we pray and sing, he responds and delivers. He beats down Satan and Satan is defeated. Satan and his forces have no protections. They have no defenses. They have no countermeasures against worship. Satan doesn't want God's people worshiping. That's the one thing he can't handle. Satan and his forces, they can handle politicians. They've had them in their pocket for a long time. They can handle money. They can handle media. They can handle militaries. They have strategies to handle all these things, and they've been handling them way longer than we have. But what he can't handle is when somebody humbles himself and worships God. He can't handle what we're doing right now. Satan hates it. That's why worship is always a battleground in the church. Why is it that you're tempted to grumble about this or that? Why, why is it you don't, you don't like this thing, you don't like that other thing? Why are you so easily irritated? Because Satan wants to get you to undermine and undervalue and disrupt worship. He knows that worship is the advancement of God's army and, and, the, and that worship is a death sentence for his army. He knows that as long as there are worshipers in the world and as long as the number of worshipers is growing, then his doom is sure. Worship is warfare. And in worship, we take part in that great conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. You see what happens when Jehoshaphat's army sings. What do you think happens when we pray and sing? Remember in our study in Revelation, I love that scene. I'll keep re referring to it. We'll keep coming back to it. Remember when the prayers of the saints go up, what happens? The angel takes fire from off the altar and flings it to the earth. The prayer goes up and the fire comes down. Now, sometimes fire is a sign of God's judgment. Sometimes fire is a sign of the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's judgment, sometimes it's revival. Either way, God responds to the worship of the saints by shaking the world and by changing things. So I ask you again, do you want to change the world? Then make worship the one appointment that you never miss. Make the worship of the saints the highest priority of your life. Nothing, nothing, nothing gets in the way of worship. 
You make your mind up one time. I tell uh, people in premarital counseling, I need you to make a decision right now. You need to make a decision. The Smiths, the Johnsons, the Jacksons, you worship. That's what you do. You worship. That's who you are as a family. You worship. Uh, you don't make that decision on Sunday morning. Hey, we, we going to church today? I don't know. You feel like it? I don't know. What do you think he's preaching on? I don't know. You know what the music's going to be like today? I don't know. Who's going to be there? You don't make that decision on Sunday morning. You make that decision one time, and you follow that principle. If all worship is is a few nice prayers and a few uplifting songs and a sermon that kind of gives me some things to think about, you know, you get to see your friends, it's not really a big deal if you skip it, if that's all it is. But if you are meeting with God to intercede for the world and to do battle with the kingdom of darkness, how can you stay away from that? How can you say you've got something more important to do? You have something more important than entering the heavenly courts and meeting with God. Really? What is that? What is more important than that? We worship as if the world depended upon it because it does. It is the most important event of the week and the future of the world depends upon it. In worship each week, we strike a heavy blow against the dominion of darkness that great, heavy, burdensome, impending disaster of darkness and ignorance and wickedness that is on her horizon, we beat it back in worship. And then we go out all week collecting the fruit of that victory that God works on our behalf when we humble ourselves and submit to him. So when you come, understand that this is what we're doing. We're interceding for the world and we're beating back the kingdom of Satan. So when you come, pray with all your heart. Confess your sins. Listen to the living word from heaven. Profess your faith and confess your faith with boldness. Sing with joy. Eat with the living Jesus and go forth in peace knowing that the victory has been won. This is how the world is changed. This is how the world is resurrected from death to life. Let's do it with all of our beings, with all of our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to give us your spirit so that we might not forget these things. Fill us with your spirit so that we may fight as uh, priests in uh, a, a nation of priests, that we would intercede for the whole world through our worship, and that you would hear and respond and shake the world, change the world, shake things up. Father, we pray that this worship today would be acceptable in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.